Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a special edition of Bulls HQ because I guess you could call this a bit of a crossover podcast of sorts and uh, you're probably sitting there thinking, what do I mean by that? Well, today I'm joined by not one, but two of the hosts from a Bull Court Press podcast. I'm of course referring to Will Gottlieb and Stefan No, writers up there at The Athletic. If you follow me, I'm sure you already follow Stefan and Will. Fellows, thank you for joining me. I'm looking forward to this pod. We're excited to be here. Thanks for having us on. This is a, it's a fun thing, uh, especially during this offseason. There's not a lot to be talking about, so it's good to uh, get together for one of these. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Likewise, guys. And, and I know we've done pods together before. I'm pretty sure I've appeared on Bull Court Press before when one of you guys have sort of had to be away and obviously vice versa. I think I'm pretty sure both of you have been guests on my show as well, but we've never really done a podcast where all three of us have been on the line together. And as you sort of alluded to there, Will, there's not a ton to talk about at the moment. It's a bit of a, a dead season for the Bulls, given that they're not in the playoffs. And I guess the real stuff for the Bulls is the draft, and that's still probably, I guess, two months away, really. And the only thing that we have sort of to look forward to is the upcoming lottery, which is probably still three three or so weeks away. But in the meantime, I thought what we could do is just maybe just talk the draft, talk about the prospects, and really sort of dive into it and, and sort of just you know play out what the Bulls could be could be doing come the draft and just sort of going through all the pros and cons of all the available, I guess, guys that may be available either, at either pick six or seven, depending on where the, books, uh, the Bulls sort of fall. So I know you guys have sort of done... Uh, profiles both on the athletic and as well as on Bull Corp Press as well. But what I thought we could do is just sort of dive into it on my show. I haven't really had a draft episode as of yet, but uh, yeah, I want to talk draft and if we have time, maybe some some playoffs as well at the back end of of, of this show. But let's dive into the, into the draft because that's what people are concerning themselves with at the moment. And like I said, we're still several weeks away from the lottery, but. I guess based on what John Paxson said at the at his end of season season uh, press conference, it kind of appears that the Bulls are headed towards taking a wing of sorts. And I've got mixed feelings about this, but I was kind of interested to get your take on this. And I wanted to understand from you, from your perspective at least, do you think it's the best strategy to be sort of pigeonholing yourself into taking a wing at this point in time, or? Should the Bulls be, I guess, be more considerate of some other positions that may be available in this draft? Sure. So I think that overall, it's a good strategy. You need to be aware of how the league is evolving. I mean, if you just look at the way that basketball has changed, even in the last couple of years, it's been so dramatic with the uh, increased importance in spacing and three-point shooting. And that's why wings are so important this year. Now, with that said... Uh, it's pretty unfortunate because this is a big man draft. If you look at uh, a lot of the players in the top 10, uh, some really good big man prospects and the wings are frankly like just not really that great. I think there's a bunch that you can uh, put together in that like 15 to 30 range where, you know, the Bulls can take one of those with the 22nd pick. But as far as top 10 guys, like you're looking at Mikhail Bridges, which Pax hinted very strongly at that they would be looking at, but he's kind of a a reach at six where the Bulls are picking. So I like the overall philosophy, but I just don't know. I mean, it's just unfortunate that in this draft, it's kind of a, you're kind of fighting against all these centers too. Yeah, it's good to see. I would you know the the front office is kind of recognizing the trends of the league. They're picking up on. 
um, not only some of the Bulls' weaknesses in terms of where they have room to grow on their roster. Uh, Levine is more of a combo guard. Dunn is obviously a point guard. Uh, Markkanen's a 4-5. Uh, and that and that's really the core. And so when you look at the holes that this team has, obviously Lopez is under contract next year. Uh, a 3 makes a lot of sense. Now, you're drafting at 6, and that could go... Um, I mean, that could be seven, it could be eight in some circumstances, it could be higher than that. Uh, if in the unlikely uh, event that they get a top three pick, but um, right in that six zone, there just aren't a ton of good wing options, and so it's tough to say that they're going to take a wing. I would also add that, um, they aren't necessarily, and we say this on our show all the time, it's you know, it's hard to say that the Bulls can just take uh you know, a, a, a wing because that's the fit that they need. They really need to be looking at best talent available. Um, and if that means that a center who falls is the best talent, it would be hard for me to feel good about them passing just because they're looking for a particular position. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that 100%. And I, I, I'm, I wasn't disappointed when he said that because I guess he was somewhat cagey about it. He did he did mention defense, athleticism, and three-point shooting, which, to your point, Stefan, is where the league is going. So it is good to hear Paxson obviously say that, but at the same time, you, you do, I guess, get a little bit concerned that maybe that that's exactly where they're focusing and that they've got um, the blinders on in that regard and maybe disregarding some other players or some other talents there who... Who could actually help this team, even though they're not necessarily ne- not necessarily the prototypes that the league is, I guess, trending towards. And and will you just touched on something there that I wanted to talk about? And I won't say this isn't necessarily the worst time to have a really high pick because um, this is going to be a good draft. So even if you don't come away with a wing, you're likely to come away with a good player. But given what the Bulls lack in terms of talent. I won't again. I won't say it's the worst time to have a draft pick, but it's not. I, this draft itself, in terms of where the Bulls were picking, it's not necessarily ideal if you are chasing a wing. In terms of where the Bulls are picking, but I think you know, it's coming into this season, they had this opportunity to really make a push for that first pick, where you could get the best talent available, who's also a wing, and that would have been the best of both worlds. Obviously, Luka Doncic is, in my opinion, the best prospect. Um, obviously, he could. Uh, go one or two or even three depending on who's picking but um, you know he really would have fit perfectly and been the best talent available but just to to go backtrack about what Pax was saying I do think it's good for him to kind of have this struggle of do we want to pick for a wing because we know that's where the leaguer is headed or do we want to pick for talent because we know we're not necessarily quite yet best set up to contend and we need to prioritize talent immediately. And so I do think that's like a good internal um, kind of argument that he has to be having. So it's good to see him on the right page there. Yeah, I I do like too that Pax seems to be adjusting more, more than just this wing strategy. I think that the Bulls are a lot more willing to take these younger players. I mean, Markkinen was a freshman. He talked about Youth and athleticism, that terrible catchphrase that just never dies. So um, that's that's also another reason why I don't really like Mikhail Bridges. Uh, I know a lot of people are really high on him, but I mean, he, he played like, I think he played five years, right? Because he was like a transfer into Villanova. I mean, he's 22 years old. Uh, he will be 22 years old at, at the time of uh, his first NBA game. And uh, I think that the fact that Pax is willing to 
take a one and done. Um, that's like another positive area where the bulls are growing. Yeah, timeline, right? Where you have to get uh, a pick this season who's going to be on the same timeline as Markkanen. I know Dunn is a little bit older and Levine has been in the league a few years, but you really have to time it up well with those guys. And so um, the younger, the better. Well, Bridges is going to be that test, I guess, or the, or the test of that theory. Like you mentioned there, Stephanie, he's, he's probably one of the older guys, I guess, in the top 10, uh, if, if you consider those prospects who, I guess, universally have been sort of listed as those top 10 prospects. He's definitely one of the oldest amongst that crew. And I guess that's going to be the test for for Paxson and the Bulls generally in terms of, of the approach that, that they take. Do they continue the path of taking someone like Markkinen where, you know, a bit of a one-and-done type character, which a lot of these top prospects are, or do they sort of revert back to the Paxson of old, if you want to call it that, where they've sort of taken two, three, or even four-year, I guess, experienced college players where they sort of rely on that 21 or 22-year-old to, to come into the team and to hopefully hit the ground running from day one. So Bridges is probably going to test that theory out a little bit. And, and given that we're talking about him now, we may as well go into him either with a little bit more depth, given he does sort of tick all the boxes that the Bulls are looking for from a defense, a shooting, and an athleticism uh, perspective on the wing. But I guess my, my question in, in terms of, of Bridges it's him itself is, would that be an inspired pick for you guys? Obviously, he's a he's a fly a high floor guy. He's he's going to be a good defender in this league. He's going to be a good shooter. There's some scope for him to be even more than that. But his floor is going to be high, whilst his ceiling may not necessarily be as high as some of the others. So my question really is: Is that an inspired choice for you guys? And and would you be happy with someone like Bridges being taken with? Let's just call it the sixth pick. Sure. So I think. The sixth pick just feels like a little bit of a reach for me. Um, when you look at what Bridges is as a basketball player, as you mentioned, Stefan, 21 and a half years old right now, going to be 22 before the NBA season starts up again in the fall. Um, he's So he's a little bit older. And when we're talking about prospects, the older you are, generally, the harder it is for you to see more upside just because if they haven't shown it by this age, it becomes a little bit harder and harder the older you get. Um, if we're talking about the seventh pick or the eighth pick, which is where it looked like the bulls were going to fall towards like the back 15 games of the season, I would have been much happier with it, but I think they are kind of in this position now where they have to, well, they're going to test this idea of best talent available versus best fit. Um, I like bridges a lot as a player. He's a fantastic defender, uh, really, really improved his three point shot to where he's like a knockdown three point specialist. Um, can guard multiple positions, like really a modern player. But to me, he fits better with a team like the Cavs who are going to get the Nets pick or the 76ers who are probably going to get a pick here uh, around like 10 or so. So um, I just don't think the Bulls have enough talent to where he is like the complimentary player that he is, is like um, you get the most out of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I have to correct myself here. So Bridges, uh, he redshirted as a freshman, and then he played three years at Villanova. But yeah, that's really what concerns me about him is you have to discount these guys heavily for age. I mean, if you look at the difference physically between an 18-year-old and a 21 or 22-year-old, it's just so so vast. And the fact that Bridges, uh, he was not really that much of an impact player in his first two years at Villanova. I mean, he, we have 116 games of his college career and only in his last 40 or so was he like a 
a big time score and impact player. And even in those 40 games for Villanova, I mean, there were stretches if you watched him in the tournament where he was pretty invisible. I mean, there were other stretches where he played extremely well. He had a very strong tournament overall. But anytime he tried to put the ball on the floor, I mean, when Jalen Brunson was in foul trouble for some of those games and you were looking for him to step up, he was not really capable of doing that. He was kind of out of control on his drives. So I think he's going to be like a fairly limited player in the NBA. And people want to make this Kawhi Leonard uh, comparison. I mean, the fact of the matter is that for every Kawhi Leonard that is drafted with that type of player, there's like 20 guys that, you know, don't even come anywhere near reaching that level. And maybe like, you know, five guys that maybe become fringe all-stars or something. So if you, you can't expect that level of production from uh, Mikel Bridges. I, I think it's much more likely that he just turns into like a pretty good starter, maybe like a, yeah, somewhere, somewhere around an average starter. And for the Bulls to <laughs> have put us through this misery and this season to get a player like that, I just don't really think that it's worth it. The kind of player I like to compare him to is Trevor Ariza. I'm not saying I compare him to Trevor Ariza, but uh, Ariza, fantastic role player, great defender, can knock down the three, and like a great compliment um, for Harden and Chris Paul. You can kind of it helps you uh, hide Harden on defense a little bit because you have a good defensive point guard and a good defensive wing. So I could see a lot of similarities there, but like. Yeah, like you said, Stefan, the sixth pick for after a year of just miserable, miserable basketball just feels like a little bit of a stretch for Bridges to me. Um, I like him a lot, and like I said, eight or nine, seven, eight, nine, uh, maybe we could talk, but it seems like a little bit of a stretch at six. Well, I was going to ask that question to you guys, you know, whether taking Bridges at six would justify a tanking season, or, or you know, it, would he be the prize, uh, prize pick that you would hope be hopeful of at the end of, a, of the tank if you, you know, you're after 82 games of, uh, of heavy losing, if you were to walk away with Bridges, would that justify a losing season? But it sounds like you, you guys are pretty adamant that it probably wouldn't. Um, and if that's the case, I kind of agree as well. And, and I've sort of floated this idea before, but if the Bulls end up in six and they were to take Bridges at it wouldn't be an inspired choice for me at least, but that leads me to another question that I have. And I'm, I'm not sure if I am on board with this idea, but I think you at least have to float this idea. But if for whatever reason Bridges is their guy, does it make sense at all to maybe trade down and, uh, you know, move from sixth to ninth as an example to 10th or whatever the, whatever the, the pick may be and get rid of pick six and acquire another asset along with Michael Bridges that way, giving up your your pick six to another team. Should the Bulls consider the idea of maybe trading down if for whatever reason Bridges is their guy? Um, that's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I guess it would just depend on what they were able to get. And uh, the teams that are behind the Bulls, the Kings, the Cavs, the Knicks, and the Sixers, um, you could see any of those teams, probably not the Kings as much. They're in the uh, same boat as the Bulls where they need to be prioritizing best talent. But the Cavs, uh, if they're going to keep LeBron, they probably need a great defensive wing to kind of help uh, just with their lineup flexibility and their defense. Uh, the Knicks are, you know, Porzingis and Nilakina are their guys, and uh, Bridges could be a great complement to them. And then obviously I mentioned the Sixers already, who have Simmons, who have Fultz, who have Embiid, and uh, a couple of good role players there, but, he, you know, he would be fantastic there too. So, uh, I think it would just depend on who and what the Bulls could get back. 
Um, I, I would, if I were the Bulls, I would always be making those calls and seeing what's available to me. But I, I don't think I would necessarily be like actively trying to get out of this pick just because I think that there is some talent who could fall to six. Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna have to disagree with you here. Like, I think that if they could do a trade similar to what the Kings did last summer, where they trade down for two picks, I would be totally in favor of that. Now, I don't think that they would still get Mikael Bridges. Like, if that's their plan, uh, I think it's like kind of dumb. But if they do get two picks, and you know, Bridges gets off their board, and they get two players in that similar range, I think that's a a great win for them. Because frankly, I mean, if Michael Porter, if he's taken off the board, if people, if teams feel like his back is fine, then these picks, these guys in like the six to 10 range, they're all like fairly similar in my mind. So if you can get uh, one extra pick and uh, just like get two bites of the apple, you know, very uh, Sam Hinky process style thinking, I think that's uh, definitely a better course of action for the Bulls. Do you think that that's like fair value though? I just don't. I mean, the reason I guess I was a little bit more lukewarm on it is because it seems unlikely that you'd get a high pick. Well, you get like whatever the eight, nine pick plus another higher pick. I just it seems like a lot to ask. Yeah, I just don't really see that much differentiation in that group, like uh, between six and ten. I, just, I mean, assuming that even if they lose out on bridges, like I, I guess like I don't really have a problem with that. So I don't mind dropping down for the extra pick. I mean, like a a mid round pick, uh, in this draft, I think still has like very very good value. That's why I would be totally for it. Yeah, and I guess the the issue there is like finding a team that has the the multiple multiple picks in that range to to sort of facilitate that deal. But I mean, it's definitely possible, and it's just something I've been thinking about, and, and I, I'm not sure where I stand on it. You guys both pretty much played the the exact sort of back and forth that I've sort of had in my own mind as well, like whether it's a good or bad idea, whether I think it's something they should be considering or not. But I think it has to be an option. And it's just to that point, it sort of alludes to the fact that the Bulls don't really have a dead set option right or set in stone at this point. It could go a whole raft of ways. And to that point, um, you mentioned it there, Steph, and if, if someone like Michael Porter Jr. is taken in the top three for whatever reason taking a swing on him at number six, for example, that's suddenly that's off the board. And maybe that, you know, drastically changes what your your whole draft board was going to look like. So this whole thing can go a raft of ways. And it sort of sounds like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sort of sounds like we should be probably the safest way, or maybe not the safest bet, but maybe the in terms of a talent, a talent upside, the best way for the Bulls to sort of approach this draft, or at least the primary way they should be thinking about it, is taking a swing on the on the on the best player available, and that may be Michael Porter Jr. at pick six. So you brought him up. Let's talk about him. And I guess my my first question about Michael Porter Jr. and I don't know if you guys have sort of sensed this as well, but is he like you know among the fan base at least there seems to be a very loud faction of Bulls fans who are totally in on Michael Porter Jr. and compared to all the other prospects in this draft. I don't see anyone else that's sort of universally as loved as Michael Porter Jr. among the fan base. And I'm kind of confused as to why that is, given that he basically has missed his entire college career. So can you guys enlighten me on why Bulls fans are so in on Michael Porter Jr., despite, I guess, not really having seen him play that much at all? The only thing I can think of is he is a Bulls fan or he... Uh, pretends to be on social media. He like was at one of the Bulls games towards the end of the season. He like 
post pictures of himself on Instagram wearing bulls attire and stuff like that. So that could be part of it. I think the other thing is that like when you're talking about a guy who was injured for the vast majority of his season, you don't necessarily have enough time to like nitpick at the flaws, which is what we love to do, or at least I love to do. Um, and so you just kind of remember him for like the incredible score that he was in high school, the number one prospect in high school being just dominant at scoring the ball. And I think like there still is a lot of potential for him to be that way. My concern is whether he'll be more of like a Carmelo Anthony, Rudy Gay type of scorer where that's really all he does, or if he can be a more versatile player. Um, and if you're looking at a whether it's high volume, high efficiency or high volume, low efficiency score, it doesn't, you know, makes no difference. Um, putting that into a lineup with a guy like Chris Dunn, who needs the ball in order to be effective and Zach Levine, who needs the ball in order to be effective and Larry Markkinen, who should have more touches as it is. Uh, I can see that getting a little sticky. Will you totally hit the nail on the head there uh, with your comments that they, the people who are obsessed with Michael Porter haven't, had enough time to dissect his flaws because you just haven't seen that much of him. Uh, any player that the Bulls get at six, I mean, there's a reason why five other teams are passing on them. It's it's because there are flaws in whoever they're going to take. And for Porter, I mean, obviously the back is a huge concern, but I watched like a couple of his high school games. I actually didn't really love his game that much. Um, I, you know, he looks amazing in these high school games because he's playing against kids who are like five foot eight, <laughs> you know, and he's six ten in high school and he's just dunking over people and shooting right over them. But he didn't have like a great feel in high school. His defensive intensity really worries me. I was hoping to uh, get a better feel for what type of player he would be in college. Unfortunately, obviously, like he only played, I think, 50 minutes or something. So uh, I would... I mean, he was the MVP of the McDonald's All-American game. He dominated all these invitationals where he went one-on-one -on -one with a lot of these prospects. So there's definitely talent there, but I'm just I'm definitely not as high as other people on him. At the same time, I realized that he was number 1 on a lot of boards before the year started. So if you can get him at 6, it, it's just hard to pass on that type of talent. I think it's the same thing that uh, attracts attention with Levine, right? Like the things that he does well, he does very well, which are score and make flashy plays. And those are the exciting ones. Those are the ones that people want to see. Those are the ones that like attract the casual fan. And I think Michael Porter is the same way. He's an incredible scorer. He's gifted. He's very fluid. Um, and I think he will be a good scorer at the next level. Um, what I'm not sure about is the stuff that I mentioned earlier, where I just don't know about him being like a team player. I think they're all fair questions to ask. And, and this next thing I want to say is going to sound contradictory, but to me, I think if Porter Jr. is available there at six, then I think given the Bulls' lack of talent, in my opinion, I think you need to take the swing on maybe the highest upside guy. And, and Porter Jr. could be that given, like you, like you guys mentioned, he was the number one rated player or ranked player coming out of high school just before that injury. But at the same time, to me, I guess amongst these top 10 guys, he's the biggest unknown. And now, depending on how you want to look at that, you, you could obviously take that with a glass half full or glass half empty. You could you could read into that in multiple ways. But I don't know. Stefan, you wrote a really good article up on The Athletic, I guess, just summarizing the Michael Porter Jr. situation. And, and me coming away from that, 
I, I guess it just sort of reaffirmed to my original position that I just don't know enough about this guy to feel good or bad about it. Like it's a, it's a complete unknown and that that back injury is a bit of a concern for me. So I, whilst I would be okay with them taking that swing at number six on Michael Porter Jr., at the same time, I sort of acknowledge it as well that it's a complete risk and it's a complete unknown. Well, I, I think that's not only true for Porter. I mean, it's really strange to me that fans and analysts, including myself in this, like they have very strong opinions on these draft prospects. We really don't know that much about any of these guys, especially given that most of the guys, I think over half of the guys projected in the first round will be one and dones or 19 year olds coming out of Europe. Uh, you, you, you just, you can't be so concrete in your opinions, which is why I liked that idea that you had before of trading down for multiple picks. I mean, even these NBA GMs, you're not allowed to go into high school gyms anymore if you work for an NBA team. They're, they're basing these evaluations on such little information and you're seeing year after year after year teams are getting worse at drafting they're missing on so many of these different players so the only the best thing that you can do to improve your odds of drafting well is to get more draft picks and be humble about your knowledge base and how much you can really know about these players um so yeah i definitely think that that's true with michael porter i think that's true with mo bamba i think that's true with like all these guys where you know, you're you're drafting based on what they're going to do the next ten years, based on like thirty five games. That was a very Mike. That was a mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> I I I mean, it is because I, I agree with with it completely. It's 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 a complete. It, it is a risk of sorts, but I mean that you know, drafting this high and, and taking a shot on a young kid that you you don't necessarily know how it's going to pan out. That is a risk in itself. So, and I guess Porter Junior re- very much represents that, but. In terms of, I guess, what we do know about him, which isn't a lot, but based on what we've seen from his high school tapes and what he projects to be, do you guys think he's more of a small forward or a power forward in the NBA, or, or, or can he be effectively both? Well, I think Porter is tall enough and big enough to move up to the four. I'm not sure that he necessarily would be a full-time four, but uh, you kind of think about what the Bulls' death lineup might look like. And if they can acquire some more wing talent and or maybe uh, develop the wing talent that they already have um, and then slide marking it up to the five, I could totally see that being a very potent offensive lineup for the Bulls. Um, I think just in general, this Bulls team, this Bulls core is at some point going to have to uh, decide to make a commitment to being a good defensive team. 29th this past season in uh, defensive efficiency, Um, just I mean, terrible and not going to cut it moving forward. So they really need to figure that out. I don't think Michael Porter necessarily helps them at all in that regard. He probably hurts them. Um, But I think offensively, you're putting yourself in a pretty open floor with good um, creators pretty much all around the perimeter. Yeah, I also, I think he's a four. I mean, he's got the size, 6'10", with a seven-foot wingspan. When we saw him at Missouri on, like, for me, position is what position you guard. I don't think he can guard a lot of threes. And yeah, when we saw him at Missouri, uh, definitely was not at 100%. And defensively, he looked really rough. So I don't know how much you can take from that, but his lateral movement was not very good. So I just don't anticipate him being able to stay in front of a a lot of threes in the NBA. And then, you know, who will be guarding him? Is it a three or four? If it is a four, I think that 
you're able to kind of get the most out of him offensively. If you've got a little bit of a slower guy, uh, maybe wants to stay closer to the basket where he can put the ball on the ground and go to the basket or create off the dribble in some way. So um, I think, you know, all things considered, it would be best if he could play the four full time. Um, and we'll see if, if that's kind of the, the role that he assumes. Well, I mean, if the Bulls do take him at six and and, and he was to be become a Chicago Bull, I, I would be very surprised if they were to go with go at him, or with him rather, at power forward from day one. I think it's almost guaranteed that they was try to slot him in at small forward, given the, the gaping size hole that exists on the roster at small forward. So I kind of expect him to be guarding threes and for threes to be guarding him potentially. Because obviously Robin Lopez will still be around, or it sounds like he's going to be around. Obviously they could uh, still flip him in the, in the off season, but it sounds like Robin Lopez is going to be back next season. And if that's the case, he probably will be starting at center with Larry Markin and power forward. So that will kind of shift Porter Jr. to the three. And, and I guess that's when I start to get a bit nervous in terms of, of where his position really is and I start thinking about guys like Japari Parker or, or Michael Beasley as to you know is he a three is he a four where, where should he be playing and that's my concern with someone like Porter Jr and again it's an unknown we, we don't really know the, the actual answer to that question and when you take Porter Jr you sort of have to think about where he fits alongside Lowry Markinen and I don't know where you guys sit on this on this particular question but do you think Markin could actually shift up to the five as soon as next season? Is that something you you think is feasible? I would like that. I don't know that it will happen. I doubt that it will happen, but I think ideally that's where he plays. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the matchup, right? I think he can guard some fives already in the league right now. There's not really that many big men left that are just going to kill you like these huge big men. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns, he's like a very good, strong post player, uh, Boogie Cousins, but... I mean, how many other guys really, especially like in the playoffs, you're seeing teams get away with a lot of these um, spread fives who maybe aren't like the greatest post defenders, but they just kill these slow big guys on the other end. So, you know, Markin is definitely capable of doing that. I, I guess my concern isn't necessarily Markin and getting beat up down low, because like you mentioned, that that is, I guess, going out of fashion in the modern NBA, but... I would be concerned about the potential defense if starting a Porter and Markinen, or maybe not even starting those guys, but having a rotation where Porter and Markinen is your 4-5 combo and, and what that means for your pick-and-roll defense and your defense at the rim. So I'm not necessarily concerned about you know other teams working the ball down low and trying to body up guys like Porter Jr. and Markinen, but it's can the Bulls actually prevent teams getting into the paint or, or stopping them getting into the paint, and when you're running a, a front court duo of Markin and Porter Jr. out there, that that was probably more my concern, more so than Markin getting beat up. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, the Bulls aren't doing a good job of that anyway, and so I think just generally speaking, they need to figure out how to do that. They did a lot of trapping and blitzing pick and rolls this year uh, that ended up in a lot of layups and corner threes. I think they'll probably have to reevaluate what defensive scheme they use against pick and roll uh, going into next year. Um, you know, we're seeing with the Pelicans, obviously like Davis and, and Miritich are really, really good at that, but it is like, you do have to be very quick footed. You do have to have mobility at those big spots. And, um, you know, I think Porter, since he's kind of been more of a three, his career, his whole career, he can probably learn to do that. And, um, you know, we saw a lot of, 
impressive moments in terms of mobility for Markkanen. So hopefully he can do it too. So another thing to consider with Porter Jr. as well, and it, it's, it sort of relates to Markkanen, I guess, as well. But I'm sort of, what I'm alluding to in the next question is around the fit between Porter Jr. and Zach Levine and, and if there's a redundancy between the two. And we sort of saw the combination of Dunn, Levine, and Markkanen not really sort of take off this season and granted it was a small sample size I believe they only played 12 games together and in limited minutes in a losing situation so not the best sort of uh, criteria to be necessarily judging these guys on but if you add Michael Porter Jr. into that mix another guy who's a dominant scorer who wants to be a dominant scorer someone who really likes to I guess use his jump shot as part of his arsenal is there a bit of a crossover with him and Levine and if so and you add someone like Dunn in the mix, does that sort of negate someone like Larry Markman? Does he go, go down the totem pole to a to a level where we're not necessarily comfortable with? I think you bring up a really good point, Mark. Uh, if you watch uh, Porter at Nathan Hale High School, Brandon Roy was the coach there, and he got most of his offense through isolations. They didn't really run a lot of pick and rolls. They didn't have a lot of motion as a lot of Porter grabbing the ball off rebounds, running down the court, initiating transition offense and pulling up for a lot of three-pointers or taking it to the rim for um, layups. And I think he is going to need the ball. I mean, I, I think that's a legitimate concern. And with Levine, you know, Levine and Dunn already had problems with who's going to bring the ball up, who's going to control the ball. And you add another player in that mix, that could be kind of messy. They're, they're probably going to play Porter off the bench to start anyway. But if you're looking at down the line, you know, if you extend Dunn, if you give Levine a big contract and now, you know, two or three years down the line, you're wondering what what are we going to do with Porter? And um, that could definitely be a concern. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And it's just something to think about in terms of lineup conversation uh, combinations rather. But again, it's not something that's going to necessarily, I guess, steer you away from taking that swing on Michael Porter Jr., but it's just something to consider at least. So based on this conversation, it sort of it sort of it sounds like that we all agree that if he's available, that the Bulls sort of need to take a swing on a high upside guy like Porter Jr. But we also recognize that there is a lot of unknowns and it's not necessarily a home run just yet. Is that a fair sum, uh, summation on this 10-minute uh, chat that we've sort of had on Porter Jr.? Absolutely. I think we feel pretty similarly about uh, Mikhail Bridges and I think we feel pretty similarly about most of these guys where um, you know some of these top bigs especially are very talented but like how do they fit in with the modern NBA how do we want to build this team that still has like some molding to do like you, the, there's some opportunity here to really create what this Bulls team for the next however many years is going to look like and this pick represents like a pretty big part of that and so these are really difficult decisions yeah and I should add too that if if this does end up being a problem, that's kind of a good problem to have. If Porter is so good that you're wondering if he needs a higher usage, if he needs the ball more, then, um, I mean, <laughs> I think that all of us, too, are kind of low on Levine. So, I mean, if Porter ends up being a stud where he's capable of being like a top 10 player in the league, then they can always just move on from Levine anyway, right? That's definitely true. So we, we should keep that in mind that the guys that are on the roster at the moment aren't necessarily set in stone. And, and even if they are brought back, even if the Bulls do re-sign Levine for four years, five years, whatever the number might be, even if it's three, they're not necessarily wedded to him for the long term. So that, that is a good point to consider. But 
yeah, it's just something to weight into the whole Porter discussion. And and to your point, where we have sort of um, agreed on on the Bridges situation as well as Porter Jr. So let's talk about something where there might be some slight potential for us to disagree about. And and I want to talk about Trey Young. And I'm not necessarily someone that's super high on Trey Young, but at the same time, I sort of caught myself almost defending the guy or or having him higher in my mocks than a lot of other people do because I sort of. I, there's been a bit of a backlash backlash with Trey Young where everyone was so hyped about this guy maybe in January, February, whenever it was, and then things didn't necessarily work out for him towards the back end of his college season, and it's, it sort of felt like the pendulum has swung too far against Trey Young. But I want to talk about him because he's an interesting discussion point in terms of that whole best player available versus fit discussion, and it's something I wrote about up at Bloggable, but... To me, again, Trey Young represents a bit of a test for the Bulls in terms of whether they consider taking him at, let's just say, six. Maybe he's the best player available at six if some of these guys go off the board earlier. Do they even, I guess, consider taking someone like Young at six, given that he is an undersized point guard, someone that has some deficiencies on defense? Or do they sort of navigate towards that comfortable fit range and I, th- I think that's why I like talking about Trey Young more so than um, Trey Young, the talent itself, because it's going to be an ideology test for the Bulls there. So what do you guys think about Trey Young as the prospect? And do you think there's any chance at all that he, that he is a Bull in a few months' time? Yeah, so I, I want to go back to this idea that I talked about where people are looking for a perfect prospect at six, and you have to put that expectation away because it's not going to happen. So Trey Young certainly has his flaws. You mentioned some of those, Mark, which I think are totally legitimate. I think he's going to be a very poor defender. You look at his body frame, and it's hard to envision him adding very much strength to that. I mean, he he's, and also the effort problems are very serious. He did a lot of unnecessary switching at Oklahoma, just didn't try at all on defense. And part of that too was because he was tasked with such a huge role on the offensive end. Now, with all those weaknesses said, I still think that his upside, people are selling him way short. If you if you just look at his scoring and his assist numbers, they are completely unprecedented. I think that he does not get nearly enough credit for his playmaking ability. People think that he's just some shooter that pulls up from the logo on these college courts and, you know, sometimes he bricks it and sometimes he hits it. I mean, he's a much more nuanced player than that. Some of the passes that he made uh, in college, no other player was capable at making those passes, and for him to do that as a freshman is insane. I mean, he's he just has so much room for growth. I think that his floor is higher than people give credit for, and his ceiling, I mean, he could be really, really good. You You look at how well some of these teams in the NBA are able to build teams around guys that can pull up from anywhere. It is an extremely rare skill. And he has it, okay? So, I mean, maybe he busts because he's just such an atrocious defender that he can't guard anyone. But um, his upside is going to be higher than anybody else the Bulls can take in that range. I like Trey Young. I think the way that defenses adapted to him and his scoring really like changed the game for him. And that's kind of why he struggled in the second half of the season. Um, I think playing alongside uh, just generally more capable players will help him a lot, even when his shot isn't falling. 
my concerns are pretty much the same as you guys. I think the the physical frame could be an issue. I don't know that the t- like people want to compare to Steph all the time just because of the shooting, but like Steph is uh, an absolutely elite finisher around the rim, gets into the paint at will and finishes like you know upwards of sixty something percent. I had the number a while ago, but I can't remember now. Um, I don't know that Trey Young will be able to do that in the NBA, and I don't know how much of a problem that will be for him because like. Steph can take advantage when you play when you overplay him to uh, take away the shot. I don't know that Trey Young will be able to do that. I think he probably can just because if that shot is as deadly as it looks and it seems to be, then he'll have pretty wide open lanes. But it's definitely a question. Uh, there was a report from Cowley a couple months back that said that the Bulls were hoping another team would uh, be foolish enough to jump uh, the Bulls for Trey Young, and it would help the Bulls land Marvin Bagley. Um, and I think more than anything, this Trey Young debate, uh, it represents like what the Bulls will be left with. Will a team in front of the Bulls like the Magic or the Hawks be um, willing to pull the trigger on Trey Young? And if so, who will that leave the Bulls? Who will fall to the Bulls as a result? Um, I don't necessarily think that the Bulls are locked in with either Bridges or Porter, um, or Bamba the way that we, and not just on this podcast, but like we just wrote this article and that was kind of the way we were talking about it. Uh, I think there are going to be some more options just depending on the way that things shake out on the draft. Because as you mentioned earlier, Stefan, um, you know, kind of the back end of the top 10 and into the kind of uh, back end of the lottery is kind of within the same talent level. I think between at the very least like two and four, two and five, is in that same group. So the Bulls could land uh, any of those guys, and it really just depends on who takes who. And I think Trey Young is really the key domino there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and, and to your point, if the, if the Magic are sitting there at five and the Bulls are at six, the Magic obviously have a glaring hole at point guard after tra- trading Alfred Payton. They don't really have a, a notable point guard to build around. And, you know, do they take a swing on Young and take him at number five? It, it sort of makes sense to me that they would. I could see them taking Mo Bumba as well. But if they take Trey Young at five, then to your point, Will, it's not something the Bulls need to consider because he's already off the board. So it'll be interesting to see where he sort of goes. But I do feel like the, the pendulum has sort of swung against him too far. But And I sort of understand why. You know, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast before. We've talked about it you know, on my show before, but I'm sure you guys have talked about it previously as well, this, this need for wings in the modern NBA. But whilst that's true... The modern NBA game sort of become a game that's a high skill game, a high finesse game. And in this draft alone, I'm not sure, maybe outside of maybe Luka Doncic, is Trey Young the highest skilled guy in this draft? And and whilst there are some deficiencies around his game, you can't ignore his shooting, you can't ignore his passing ability. And then those things are highly skilled traits that teams are looking for. So I kind of think that, yeah, like I said, the narrative has gone too far against Trey Young at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I also think, um, you know, you have to think about, like, for the Bulls, who you want to put the ball, whose hands you want to put the ball in, uh, and who is really capable of running this offense. Uh, and if it's between Trey Young and Chris Dunn and Zach Levine, I don't know. Would I take Trey Young? I'm not sure. But it's certainly an intriguing question when you put it that way. I think the Bulls have kind of married themselves to their existing backcourt, and um, maybe they should revisit that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Will. Uh, I think that the Bulls are higher on 
what they have on the roster than probably we are. And maybe that prevents them from taking a guy like Trey Young. You know, Mark, I read that article that you wrote for Bloggable. I thought you made a really nice point there that the Bulls need to focus mostly just on getting as much talent as possible on this roster. Because right now, I mean, these guys are going to make improvements just based on their age. I think Markinen is going to get a lot better. Dunn is going to keep on improving. People forget how young Levine is. I mean, he's still got room for improvement too. But even with those gains, they don't have enough really to, I think, like get past the second round when this team peaks. Very similar to uh, the iteration of the Bulls that is near and dear to Mark's heart with Kirk Heinrich and Ben Gordon. But <laughs> hopefully we would like something a little bit better than that. So yeah, I mean, they, just, they, they really just have to take best player available. They have to trade for as many picks as possible in the next couple drafts and just get some young talent in here. Look at how good the 76ers are already, and their top two players are like sub-24. Um, look at how good the Celtics are built for the next eight years with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and, you know, Kyrie Irving. They've got so much talent, and like the Bulls aren't just like competing with themselves to be a good team. They've got to worry about who else is out there, and I think that is a really good point and a good uh, argument as to why they need the best talent available, because right now I don't see... Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, and Markinen, um as kind of what they are right now. And like you said, they're going to improve, but it's hard to imagine them contending with those guys. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm definitely scared about the Sixers. I'm scared about the Celtics. And it's funny that we bring up those two teams because they're obviously in the playoffs right now. And as we're recording it, they're actually playing in the playoffs right now. So we can sit here and talk about the Bulls and, and their potential upside, but their main competition, assuming the Bulls do become contenders in the next few years, they're going up against the Celtics and the Sixers who, like you said, Will, they're already loaded up with some guys that are, are younger than Levine and Dunn and they're already in the playoffs. So... It's something to consider, not only who fits the Bulls right now, but you know how you sort of shore up yourself against your competition. I think that's definitely a valid point. But look, I brought up Trey Young because I thought we might disagree about that, but it sounds like we didn't too much. But let's talk about the big men in this draft, and maybe we'll disagree slightly here. But I'm not too sure if the Bulls should take a big man. I've definitely listened to an episode of Bull Court Press before where I'm pretty sure, Stefan, you were advocating, maybe not advocating, but you were sort of alluding to the fact that the Bulls should probably not necessarily, or maybe should steer away from a big man. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you had that position before. But if for whatever reason, the best player available happens to be someone like Mo Bamba or Marvin Bagley or, or maybe even just someone like Jaron Jackson Jr., who's looking like a top three to four pick at the moment. Maybe he slides to six based on what other teams do. Do you think the Bulls should consider taking a big man if that is the best player available? And on top of that, how does that stylistically change what they want to do as a franchise? Yeah, uh, Mark, you are correct on that. In general, I'm not in favor of them taking a big man now. If Jaron Jackson drops to them, um, they have to take him. I mean, he has defensive player of the year potential. He's a very smart team defender, can shoot the three well, uh, good off-ball cutting. So I think he would fit in pretty perfectly with what the Bulls are trying to do. Uh, Bagley I'm not as high on, and I don't think he's going to be available anyway. I think I think Bamba will probably be there. Another guy you didn't mention, maybe we'll get into him later, is Wendell Carter, which um, I, I actually I think I like him better than Bamba, a uh, really intelligent player. But um, yeah, I mean, if... If the talent gap between a big man and a wing is just like 
pretty significant, then yeah, go for the big man. But if it's at all close, um, I think you have to take a wing just, yeah, based on like how good big men need to be in order to make an impact. I mean, like even if when, when we're watching these playoff series, like Hassan Whiteside is barely playing fourth quarters. He's just getting played off the floor because you're just not winning with big men that can't really space the floor anymore. Or do anything with the ball when they have it outside of the post. I think that's another big thing. Um, and, you know, you mentioned some of the guys that are in the playoffs and making an impact right now. I think, you know, you can't really look past Rudy Gobert. He's been just absolutely dominant. And a lot of people like to compare Mobamba to Gobert because they both have the same wingspan. But, like, I don't know. Gobert is, like, an incredibly intelligent player. He's timely with his block shots. He knows the floor very well. He's a good passer. He's a great finisher. He can roll. He can jump. Um, I don't necessarily know as much about Bamba, but like I just I don't think it's a fair comparison just because of the wingspan. Uh, it takes a lot more than just being long, and I think that's probably why Bamba is sliding a little bit on most big boards uh, right now. Um, you know, generally speaking, I think those top couple big men are going to be very good. But like I said earlier, we have this ability right now to really shape the future of this Bulls team. And personally, I would like to prioritize having switchy defenders, versatile wing players, being able to guard two through four, uh, one through four, two through five. Like that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for and that I place a heavier value on than having a talented big man. Now, if you can get a big man who like, let's say Marvin Bagley turns into Anthony Davis. Uh, sure, you get him because he can step out onto the perimeter and still like hold his own, but also be a difference maker as a big man. Great. Um, and that's kind of what you're talking about is the, looking for the best talent available if he's a big. But um, you can't pick somebody who's going to be extinct in two years. Yeah, look, I agree 100%. And I, I guess the issue with taking someone like Bamba or even Mo, uh, Marvin Bagley is... They don't necessarily tick all the boxes that you want a bottom, a modern big man to do, which Jaron Jackson kind of does. And you want your big to be able to, or hopefully be able to space the floor. If you can't space the floor, then you want him to sort of create gravity by rolling to the rim and really playing above the rim the way Clint Capella or DeAndre Jordan sort of play. If, if they can't shoot, you need them to be doing that. And, and on defense, obviously, you need someone that can hopefully guard in space, but if you can't do that, can really, really protect the rim. And... If you think about those sort of aspects, Bagley doesn't tick all those boxes at the moment. I don't think Mo Bamba necessarily ticks all those boxes. So to take one of those guys and to really, I guess, commit to to one of those guys over the next three to four years, which is effectively what you'll be doing with a, a, a player taken at six, you're going to be definitely prior, prioritizing their development. It really does change the type of team you're going to be and. Look, I'll use Baz, uh, Bagley as an example. If you play him and Markman together, you know, we've talked about defense already on this podcast, but, but can you form a, a top-line defense with Markman and Bagley as your 4-5 combo? At the moment, I'd say I'd say no. And then, you know, flipping that over to, to Bamba, if, if, he, if he's raw, if he's a project and you're putting minutes at him at the 5 and it's taking him a bit of time to develop, can you ever be a good enough offense? I don't know the answer to that question. So I think that's why this big man draft is untimely in some regards to this for the Bulls. They're not necessarily in the market for a big man, and I don't think they should probably be so unless Jaron Jackson Jr. is their man. But 
yeah, at the same time, if I'm if I'm wanting to be consistent, if one of those bigs is deemed the best player available, then maybe they just have to take him. It, it's it's a really it's a bit of a toss up, and it goes back to my point that this draft could go a multitude of ways for the Bulls. I'm curious, Mark, to hear what you think about uh, Wendell Carter because you mentioned this fit with Markinen. Uh I think Carter would fit really well there. You know, he's not like an amazing shot blocker or anything. And he has had questions about his lateral movement. I think that those concerns are a little bit overrated. He was dealing with a sprained ankle for part of the season, and that's kind of why he was struggling out there. And then Duke went to this ridiculous 2-3 zone where I actually thought he did an excellent job of covering for Bagley, who was constantly out of position. So I think that Carter does have like a very high IQ defensively, and um, you know, you you said that you want to find a player that plays well in the modern NBA. Carter shot a pretty high percentage on three pointers, not a ton of attempts, but uh, he just seems like a very solid guy that would fit really nicely with what the Bulls are trying to do. So I guess I haven't mentioned Carter at the moment, uh, basically because I almost view him as the big man version of Michael Bridges, and, and not necessarily in terms of their age. Obviously, uh, Carter is is much younger. As uh, probably a lot more upside as well, but to me, I don't know if it's an inspired choice with the sixth pick. So to me, like if the Bulls had the eighth or the ninth pick and they were thinking big man, I'd be kind of into Carter at that point. But whilst I recognize ex- everything that you've sort of mentioned there, and from a fit perspective, he probably makes more sense than someone like Marvin Bagley. Again, is it an inspired choice for the sixth pick? Is he the highest upside guy at six? Those are the sort of questions I have about him and. It just it doesn't make me nervous as such, but I, I don't know if I'll be leaping with joy if the Bulls were to take someone like Carter at six, at least immediately. Maybe it proves to be the best pick in, in time, but at the moment, basically, the way I've sort of mocked up my draft, I I don't know if I would be super excited about taking Wendell Carter at, at, at six. Well, what do you think? Um, I think this is maybe another argument that the Bulls do look to move back in the draft if the talent that they're looking for is projected to go a little bit later that could be a good option and um you know the bulls there is one option i was looking at just while we were we've been recording here where they could trade to 12 and 13 the clippers have both picks but they could also get a pick in next year's draft or the year after that i mean i think whatever they do in this draft is going to tell us a lot about what their goals are and frankly like i'm not very clear on that right now i don't really know what they what team they want to be next year if they pick a Bamba, who's more of a project, maybe, uh, what does that say about how long it's gonna, how long they're gonna let this rebuild go on, and how much time they're gonna give these guys to to really develop, or maybe they go all in and try to get, I don't know, somebody that will be more competitive for them this year. So uh, that's really what I'm interested in. Uh, I think Carter, as a player, is gonna be a very good NBA player. The lower athleticism but higher intelligence thing I think is fine. I think it's a reason why he'll fall and I think a reason also why he'll be a competitive and uh, pretty good NBA player for however long his career lasts. So I like him. Uh, I agree with you, Mark, that six is a little bit high just based on you know what kind of preconceived notions we have about the talent in this draft. But um, yeah, maybe that's another reason to move down. Yeah, I think I think that's fair, and 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 that's and that's yeah, exactly what I that's what I exactly what I was alluding to in terms of Carter being my big man equivalent of Bridges. And whilst I would like to have him on this roster, and I 
I'd welcome him on this roster, and he has an obvious fit. I just don't know if the the combination with him and pick six is what I was hoping for. And it comes back to a question of, you know, expectations versus you know the end result. If if Carter is taken at six, I probably won't love it initially, but you know, in time, I might I might end up loving it the same way I did with Larry Markner at seven. So. I guess you just don't know with these things and uh, that's the whole intrigue about this draft and the, the intrigue for the Bulls going forward, I guess, for us as, as fans and as, as guys that cover this team. It, it's going to be an interesting few months, not only up to the lead-up to the draft, but thereafter and, and trying to work out how this all sort of meshes together as the Bulls build towards hopefully being the next Boston or, or, or Philadelphia. So we'll, we'll see how that happens. But we've run pretty long on the draft We've almost got an hour on these guys, and I appreciate your your input on all of these guys. But if I can catch you for maybe five more five minutes longer, I want to talk about the playoffs and not necessarily the, the playoffs in general, but specifically the former Bulls that that are operating in these playoffs and are playing pretty damn well. And there's a lot of them at the moment. There's there's quite a few of these guys that used to be Bulls that are. Uh, that are running around for other teams and when I say used to be Bulls literally last season almost they're, they're running around in different uniforms and then performing really well guys like Miritich, Rondo, Etwan Moore they were huge for the New Orleans Pelicans and helped them advance past the, the Portland Trailblazers but then obviously you got Jimmy Butler, Taj Gibson and, and even Derek Rose having a bit of a resurgence here for the Timberwolves but what have you made of the former Bulls in the playoffs and uh, does it you know, how do you feel about it? Does it give you any lingering feelings about their their careers as Bulls and and what could have been? I think you tweeted this out, Mark. But after the the Pelicans pick was set at twenty two, I just instantly became a very hard Pelicans fan. I'm really rooting for this team. They're a lot of fun. Obviously, uh, Anthony Davis is awesome. But as you mentioned, like the former Bulls that I've just really uh, rode with over their time in Chicago, not Rondo as much, but uh, it is fun to see him play well. I guess. But Nico is just going off, and that always is just awesome to watch. And uh, I don't know, uh, good vindication. And uh, Etwan, as you mentioned, playing really well. I'm hopefully going to be covering a few of their games uh, in Golden State, assuming Golden State uh, finishes up this series with the Spurs. So that'll be really fun. And then you know, it's hard not to get nostalgic watching Tom Thibodeau like spark on the sideline and like with those fist bumps and uh jimmy and taj derek's even looking pretty good as you mentioned like kind of exploding to the basket and finishing around the rim and cutting off the ball and getting some uh backdoor layups and stuff so he's kind of figuring out a way to play uh, as the not i wouldn't i wouldn't even say co-star but play off the ball and jimmy is that uh 23 point game was pretty awesome obviously the rockets are just too good for them but uh, and so it's good to like watch them and have fun with it, but not be so invested to where I'm like mad that they've lost the series. Yeah, my takeaway from watching these former Bulls, first of all, I, I love watching them. I'm always going to root for them. I don't really understand the fans who uh, once these guys who work so hard to entertain you and give so much to the city, once they leave and go somewhere else, you like just don't root for them anymore. I mean, I... I definitely don't feel that way. And any player that puts on a Bulls uniform and shows that he is working really hard for the city, like I'm always going to respect that player throughout his career. Um, but I know but, exactly what you're going to say, and I agree. <laughs> okay, but but the point that I was uh, going to make is that I think this 
these performances speak really well of how important fit is and coaching is. And especially for role players, guys like Etwan Moore and Miritich, um, I, I think that Miritich was just so badly misused in Chicago. And we were talking earlier about whether you want to play a guy like Michael Porter Jr. at the three. I mean, this is just like Miritich all over again. And it, it's just like a shame that I think part of it falls on Hoiberg that he wasn't using these guys correctly. A lot of it falls on management for not building teams that made sense together. I mean, like just every single year, like you could tell from their offseason moves that these teams weren't going to work well because like the pieces just did not fit very well. So it's just so important and it's so good to see that these guys did have talent. They were capable of being good if they were put in the right situation. And uh, yeah, I'm just really happy to see them succeeding. I was right. That is what you're going to say. And I do agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure, Stefan, when you were mentioning hardworking guys that have sort of put on the Bulls jersey and have been, you know, really worked hard for the Bulls, I'm sure you're referring to Dwayne Wade as well, who has been huge <laughs> for the Heat in, in a few games here. He's, he looks a lot thinner than what he did in his Bulls days. Looks much more trim, and uh, he's definitely reduced his body fat percentage. I'm sure, but uh, he, even him, even he rather has been really good for the Heat. So, yeah, it's funny how they all go away from Chicago, and maybe they need to get it need, needed to get away on, from the Bulls and, and to join a new team and to join different, I guess, situations and fits to make it possible for them to play their best basketball but it is kind of ironic as the Bulls sort of head towards the draft and after a tanking season you see all these former Bulls in the playoffs doing really good things and and in some regards really shaping the playoffs I guess we, we talked about Miritich, Rondo, Etwan Moore I'm not sure if the Pelicans are even in the playoffs without those three guys combining the way they have and really being that influential to the team like the Pelicans so yeah, it is kind of ironic, but at the same time, it's very nostalgic for us Bulls fans. And uh, yeah, I just thought it would be a good opportunity to sort of just bring up their performance because they have been awesome. And, you know, going forward, they can may continue to shape the playoffs. And like you mentioned, Will, if, if Golden State do advance, it will be a fun series seeing the Pelicans play the Warriors. And there's going to be a lot of Bulls in that series or former Bulls, I should say. So including Ron Adams as well. So there's a bit of a spin there, Steve Kerr. So there's just Chicago Bulls all over all over this all over this playoffs even if we're not necessarily in it ourselves. So it's it's just fun, but look, we've gone on pretty long here. I appreciate you guys jumping on and taking an hour of your time to talk draft, to talk Bulls with me. Uh, we should definitely do this crossover again. I had a lot of fun doing it, but um before you guys get away, if you could just let everyone know where to follow you online. Yeah, you can follow me at Won't Gottlieb on Twitter and uh, at The Athletic for my Bulls writing and at Bleacher Report for NBA and Warriors. Yeah, and you can follow me at Steph No and also at The Athletic. So obviously you can follow me at MK Hoops and I, I didn't really need to mention for, for the listeners where to, to follow you guys because I'm sure if they're following me, they're already following you guys. And, and as Stefan alluded to, you can catch both Will and Stefan on The Athletic they do some great stuff there on the athletics to sign up if you haven't already. But uh, like I mentioned before, guys, this was a lot of fun and I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. No problem. And uh, we'll see how these, we'll see how the draft sort of shakes out and maybe we can do another one of these type of podcasts after the Bulls have made their, their pick in. 
To the listeners, we've obviously covered most of the top 10 picks in this draft, or I guess guys that will probably be in the range there for the Bulls in that sort of six range. But what I intend to do is also to release another podcast shortly in the coming weeks, talking more or focusing more about the guys that may be available for the Bulls at pick 22 with that New Orleans pick. So I sort of wanted to separate the two and, and have a bit of a discussion on on both sections there. So I'll have a another podcast, another draft podcast coming at you guys in a few weeks time focusing on who the Bulls could take with pick 22 so be on the lookout for that I'll let you let you all know when it's out there I'm sure but uh I'll be coming back at you guys in a couple weeks and as we move close closer towards the lottery it's getting a little bit more exciting now we're getting closer towards the draft and uh this is what the Bulls season is sort of leaded up to so it's getting fun now we'll see how it all shakes out but until next time I appreciate you all listening and hope you enjoyed this crossover pod and I'll catch you all again next time Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.